0: Would you open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5? Like, dear God, we're still in Galatians. There's just so much here. While you're going there, let's pray. Father, we ask for your word to illuminate our path this morning. As we encounter your truth, Lord, it's my hope that I'll bend my life to your truth and not bend your truth my life. And as we uh, just take a a moment and and, uh, disconnect from the craziness of the world and connect to you, we pray that your spirit will just come all over us and wash us and and indwell us. In your name we pray, amen. In verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. Make note of that. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. It's important, isn't it? I'm over here running and if you walk with your kid at the mall and they're like sprinting around everywhere, they're not keeping in step with mom and dad, right? Pull it back. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited and provoking one another, envying one another. You know, as we were talking about the last week, I don't know if you were not here, I would encourage you to get the podcast or just send your love gift to our ministry and we'll be glad to send you... What is it? The glow-in-the-dark statue of Jesus with posable arms and oil-dispensing hands who gives you a free gift uh, along, with, along with our... T- and a cloth. Yeah, we've got to get a cloth. <laughs> now you can just get it for free at conduitchurch.com. Um, we t- I just began this conversation. That By the way, I've been praying about this for a couple of months and really looking forward to what the Lord is saying in this. And when I got to that, that self-control thing... I got to tell you, I underlined it and I thought I got to come back to that one. Because I think if I were to say self-control and it's about, you know, sexual impurity, if I were to say self-control, it's about diet. It's about, we would all, we would, okay, that's true. I, I totally agree with that. Let's, let's move on. But I wonder if there's a little bit more to it. If, if, this, if self-control, the fruit of the Spirit is love and that self-control is a, an expression of that, Self-control is the war against one more. It's the war against one more Cheeto, (laughs) but it's also the war against one more item on my calendar to try to make it all work. Uh, Ashley and I were talking last night. This is the beauty. This is why kids, their pastor's kids need therapy because their dads do uh, sermon stories, but without giving them a heads up. But last night we're talking, And she's like, oh, yeah, I really want to, I need to ride, well, first it starts with I need to drive, okay, because she's 15 and well aware that she needs to get her hours in, so everybody be on notice, Uh, that's going down, okay? So we need to drive, I need to drive more, Oh, I need to ride Brutus more, her horse Brutus. And I need to, yesterday I want to get a job, and this morning I want to be a a foreign exchange student in France, that came in the text this morning, Um, because she's just, she's full of surprises, Want to get a job, and she's got homework, and she's got church, and she, and I, it was a moment where she kind of said, I I just came to this, we're driving, and has this, you know, I'm driving, actually. Um, This moment of, there's just not enough time to do all those things. And at 15 is realizing what we, many of us, still haven't realized. There's just not enough hours in the day to do everything that we want and we need to do. And so there has to be a way to look at Scripture. There has to be a way, there has to be a reason that I can look at my life and cross-reference it with Jesus' life and say, I must be screwing something up here because I'm going a million miles an hour and I'm falling into bed exhausted every night. I can't even, and and somehow Jesus didn't do that. So what's the disconnect with us? And it's the the self-control idea is the war against one more. What does the Bible tell us? What do the Scriptures promise us about that? And in the book of Acts, chapter 6, I see a a story that unfolded in the early church that I think we could learn from, that I've learned from. Because oftentimes in this war against one more, it's not just about the Cheetos. It's not even just about negative, quote-unquote, sinful things. It's sometimes about there's too many good things. Think about your Facebook feed in the last couple weeks. Everything from Syrian refugees to Kickstarters, to donating to Miss Bobby, to going on a beach. Did you see that shirt she was wearing this morning? The beach worked out just fine for Miss Bobby. She's like, you're not going to kick me out of the church, are you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Miss Bobby, we're going to make you the pastor wearing that shirt. But you can look at all these amazing opportunities and there's just, I don't have enough time in the day to do them all. You know, one of the things that the mission that we have all the time is there's, David could tell you, there is no shortage of people who have great things going on in the world that want us to be involved. No shortage at all. And so for us, there has to be a moment where we say, this is enough. This is what the Lord has for us to do. And the war begins to unfold if it's the war against one more. But how do I know what to say yes to? How do I know what to say no to? How do you know what to say yes or no to? How does Ashley decide if it's, you know, of all these things that, are, that she wants to do, they're all good things. How does she make a decision as to what that is? What do I say yes to? Everything I say yes to is saying no to something else. In Acts chapter six, verse one, the church was growing, not unlike Conduit, a few hundred people. They were feeding widows, not unlike Conduit, doing good things in the community. And it says that those days where the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. The Hellenists were Jewish people who had uh, been the diaspora. They were Jewish people from Greece, like Athens uh, and Antioch, and they were considered Hellenists, so they would have had Jewish heritage, but uh, Greek culture, Greek names, Greek you know food. They probably had heros for breakfast. And they rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. As a young Bible college student, I definitely prayed that prayer a lot. Lord, it's not good for me to wait tables was a waiter for a long time. I had the green apron, the bow tie, name tag, the whole shebang. It was not good for me to wait on tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And when they did that, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumba, and oh, sorry, Permanus. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these were set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them in verse seven and the word of God continued to increase and numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Hundreds of disciples in the church and they said, well, who's going to be in charge of feeding these widows? Hundreds of people in conduit, who's going to be in charge of uh, taking care of the kids? Hundreds of people in conduit and who's going to go to Uganda or who's going to go to Haiti? Hundreds of people. How do we decide who says yes and who says no? How do you say yes? How do you know whether to say yes? How do you know when to say no? How do you, in the words of the great Kenny Rogers, know when to hold them? Know when to fold them? Know when to walk away? Know when to run? I truly believe that in this little vignette that happened right here are clues that help us filter through to the decisions of what we can and can't, what we should and shouldn't, what we ought and ought not to do as it relates to following the Lord. When it even looks at two great opportunities, three, four, five, six great opportunities, how do I know what to say yes to? I think it starts with the fact that they went with their people. They chose people, these seven were among their people. Notice who were the widows. There were Hellenists there, right? And notice Philip. That's a Greek name. Stephen. Greek name. Church history teaches us that he may actually have been a Hellenist. Or Nicholas. A proselyte from Antioch. Greek. It really started with maybe these were their family, their people. In your life right now, who are your people? I know hundreds and hundreds of people. I've been around the world, and so I know people in weird places. The kids hate going to the grocery store with me because I get pulled, oh, Darren, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, it's probably like going to the store with Bill Scott, not unlike. Um, People just know me because I've been around a while. It's not because I'm that nice. I'm just, I've been around a while. But of the hundreds of people over your lifetime, Bob Goff asks this question, and it's worth Pontering, pondering, pontificating and pondering at the end of your life. Your world doesn't get bigger, it actually gets smaller. If you're in a hospital room and you're hooked up to wires and machines and like my mother six, seven years ago, all the people she knew over her life, they wouldn't fit in that room. Only seven or eight people fit in that room at the end of your life. Who do you want to be those people in that room at the end of your life? And then cross-reference that with your yeses and your no's. How many yeses are you giving that make you say no to your people? There's a filter there. I, I, I have all these great opportunities. But what if this opportunity allows me to say yes to my people, to my friends and to my family, to my church family? In the, in the church environment, in small group environment, most times we actually don't know we really need a small group until a crisis happens or when a baby is born. Or. But what if we were already part of like small, intimate groups of fellowship and those are your people, the people that you know that I'm saying yes to this because it means I get to invest more in them. See, he didn't ask us to plant thousands and thousands of churches and hundreds of thousands of people around the world some people do that but Paul only planted 14 churches in his entire life 40-year ministry 14 churches you look at the end of his life and look at the beginning and see a lot of those people those who weren't martyred already were the same ones that were with him the whole time they were his people as we're saying yes and no to opportunities let's look at what it is that are our people and say no to things that might drive us away from those people and say yes to things that pull us closer to those people. And it wasn't just the people, it was their passion. See, I have a passion for what's happening in, in Haiti. So when we take, like I took Ashley with me to Haiti and Lauren's gonna go, I don't know, is Lauren in here? She, she got, yeah, one church service is enough. Listen to your daddy, right? Um, I, I like to take my people with me to my passion because it, we, we get to know each other then, and but we're also pursuing the passion that God has in us. And the fact of the matter is, I learned this from Alex Matala from Uganda. He'll be here in just a few weeks. He's the one that told me that, you know, Darren, God gives each of us a passion in our hearts, and I can't go to America and say, I need you to change your passion. If your passion is to provide clean water to people in Uganda, then I can't say change that passion and now come and pay for the Bible Institute instead. Instead of that, he's saying, I'm just, my treasure hunt, if you will, is finding people with a passion for that specific thing and then allowing them to deploy their passion there. And in your life, I believe that you have a passion for something that God has put inside of you. Did he not say if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart? He'll give you what to want. And the fact is, is, I love our friends in Haiti. I love our friends in Guatemala, Rob and Amanda Juilliard. I love them and I want you to love them and to be excited about it. But if everybody in the, every walking and living American Christian was only excited and only passionate about just Guatemala, first of all, their house isn't that big. And second of all, then what happens to the rest of the world? And the truth is, is that's why I think God says in your passion is your permission to say yes to what the Lord has for you here If you have a passion for special needs children in East Nashville, you don't have to feel guilty that you didn't donate to the refugees in Syria. Because your passion says, this is what the Lord has put inside of me. And I want to have a passion for that. I don't know many people with a passion for duck hunting, but I know one, Jason Cruz. And Jason doesn't have for a moment to feel an ounce of guilt that he is sitting in a duck blind, parenthetically. we're going to a little pastor's retreat in a duck blind in January that Jason leads. So I'm not even, I'm, I'm not, I have no idea what we're even going to do. But it's his passion, and I'm going to get a front row seat. But he doesn't have to feel guilty that he's not in Haiti because that's not his passion. It's not the passion that God downloaded inside of him. Why do you think that they said these were men of good report? They knew them. They would have known that their passion was for the Hellenists. Watch Philip as scripture goes on. Who's the one that goes to the Gentiles? It's Philip. Stephen would be preaching and would be a, become a martyr just after this unfolds, but their passion was for these people. Hundreds of people, but only seven who they knew well who would have a passion for this. And it wasn't just their passion, and it wasn't just the people that they were their people, but I believe it was also their purpose. They were deployed in their purpose. When it says that, hey, this is, we need to do this because it's not good for us to wait on tables... It wasn't because they were bad waiters, or it was beneath them. It was because they couldn't do math. They weren't trying to, you know, uh, cheapskate out the Hellenist Jews. They just were bad at doing the math of it. They needed somebody there who had a gift of administration of being able to do the math. They would need somebody there who had a gift of mercy. Somebody who felt compassion for them, but yet someone who could do the mass with so that they didn't give it all away and then there wasn't anything left at the end of it. What they needed was Romans 12, the supernatural, natural gifts of the Spirit flowing through them. Philip was full of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit, that gift of the Spirit inside of you. You don't have to deploy yourself into a purpose that you are not created to do. If your gift is not the gift of service, you don't have to feel guilty that you're not the one here folding chairs like Bob and Carol were yesterday or sat Friday. They have the gift of, that's just what they do. We're all called to, to play a part in the body, whatever. But let me tell you what, when we need to set up a thing on a Friday night uh, for the Financial Peace University and we had to set up chairs and people come along Shannon to do it, the people that deployed on that day were the people with the gift of service, which was Bob and Carol Carlion. And they whipped this thing into shape like crazy. Parenthetically, the gift of service, the gift of ministry, if you feel like, oh, that's not that great of a gift for me. That feels like so not very exciting. The one instance in the the book of Acts where they called for someone to be raised from the dead was a girl named Tabitha or Dorcas, depending on your translation. Dorcas had the gift of ministry. It says that right there in Acts chapter 6 or 9, I think, that she had the gift of ministry, she would make clothes for the disciples. She took care of them. And so when she died, what did they do? They called Peter, James, please come back. Raise her from the dead. She's that important to us. Let me tell you what, when you're in a pinch and you need to get tables set up on a Friday, you don't call the guy with the gift of teaching. I'm not of much use to you. I can sure set up tables. But let me tell you what, they get it done, the people with the gift of service. So much so that the entire church said, please, God, don't let her die. We need her. If your gift is a gift of service, man, that is your purpose. Know that the, the Lord and the world cheers you on and is excited for your gift in the body. They were deployed in their purpose. They were surrounding their passion and with their people. And finally, they were just bathed in the presence of his spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Here's why that's critical. Because if I walk, you walk out of here today and all you heard me say was follow your passion, what did Paul say in Galatians? He said, no, we crucify the passions of the flesh and its desires. It's crucified with him. Your passion, if you're a teenager, anyone ever tells you, follow your heart. That's crazy talk. Don't do that. Your heart will get you in all kinds of trouble. Follow your heart. Don't do that. Instead, delight yourself in the Lord. Why do you think that Paul spent three years in the desert after a Encountering Christ. I believe it was him being mentored and taught of the Holy Spirit to learn what God's passion would be for his heart. But you know why I resonate with Paul? Because his passion, he had a tension with God of what God wanted and what Paul wanted. And we don't have time to dive into it, but I would love for you to go home and read through Paul's story again with a different set of eyes. What did Ananias in Acts chapter 9 tell Paul that his ministry would be to the Gentiles, to their kings, and then to the Jews? And so Paul, what's the first thing he does? Comes back after three years in Damascus, and we know this in the, in the Arabian desert. We know this because of Galatians 1. The first thing he does when he comes back is he goes to Damascus, to the synagogue, to the Jews. And what happened? He got the tar beat out of him. He ends up being let down over the wall that night just to save his life. And what's the next thing he does? He goes to Jerusalem. His ministry was to the Gentiles, to their kings. And then he goes right to Jerusalem. Now, follow me. You don't pray about this. Read through it yourself, and you go back and see. But I think there's a lesson for me in this, because that was his passion where his people were the Jews. And God, in his case, the Holy Spirit was saying, don't do that, go here. Because after that, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul finally submits to the Spirit, they're going to beat him, they're going to kill him. And in fact, I think it's Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16, he actually goes back, reflects on this, and says that the Holy Spirit told me, warned me in a dream, leave, because they're going to kill you. And so he leaves. In Acts chapter 9, he leaves for Tarsus, and he is gone for seven to ten years. We're not 100% sure, but what we know is that Paul's passion was to be this uh, this, uh, apostle to the Jews and what God had for him was to make him an apostle to the Gentiles. And I believe that as his life went on, you get to Acts chapter 21. Certainly he had a ministry to the Jews. I'm not discounting that. But what does he want to do in Acts chapter 20 21? He really wants to go to Jerusalem. And, and look, I think that Paul made a mistake. And you think, Darren, that's kind of harsh. But keeping in mind, one, Paul's not uh, infallible. And number two, it says, and I quote, the Holy Spirit warned him not to go to Jerusalem. So where I'm sitting, that's kind of a mistake. The Spirit said, don't go. And he said, I'm going anyway. And not only say not go, he says he's going to bring a guy that this prophet wraps his cloak around and says... Hey, you're the guy, whoever has this cloak on is going to be tied up like this and bound. And Paul says, I'm going anyway. And I take a lot of solace in that because I'm sitting in a place that I wondered if the Lord was ever going to bring me back into the ministry world again. As a young man, I knew I was called into ministry. But I had this other passion called the music industry. And I pursued it really hard. So, you've heard me say before, my wife, i like, whoa, that's not Freudian, please God, no. My mom <laughs> said, <laughs> talk about that in therapy. Uh, my mom used to introduce me as her son, the, the minister. Up until she died, there was a brief moment where I was working with Sandy Patty, where she finally said, you know, my son, he's in the music industry. You've heard of Sandy Patty, right? And, but after that, it was like back to being a minister again. And I can't tell you anything I would have rather have done less than what what I'm doing right now. Being a pastor was absolutely terrifying, of no interest. It sounded boring. It was embarrassing. I didn't want to do it. I had this other passion. Kicked against it for years and years and years. And here's the thing. This is the hope that I want to give you this morning. If you've taken the wrong exit on your passion bus. You remember the story of Larry the crazy horse guy that would do the... um, the horse rides with me. We would go out every year and we'd do this this ride up into the big South Fork National Park. And one year we were out there and Freddie from St. Louis was with us. Freddie was a city kid, had never been in the country. And these are paths, if you've been around, these horse paths are miles long, 30, 40 miles into nowhere. And we're on a horse and Freddie's with us and a bunch of other city boys. Well, Freddie's horse throws a shoe. We're about three miles from the barn. And Larry says, well, Freddie, you head back to the barn you know, Bubba, we'll, we'll put the shoe another shoe on and you'll just meet up with us. We'll go slow and you'll catch up with us. So we're riding for a while, trees everywhere, can't see anything. And suddenly there's a fork in the road. And we go right and I'm like, hey, Larry, what, how, how's Freddie going to know where to go? And he's like, ah, he'll figure it out, you know. And we're like, well, Larry, but the, see, the problem, Larry, is he, he's, you know, 50% chance he's not going to get it right. And we went for a while, and before long, we saw up towards the top of the mountain, we saw a horse with Freddie on it. What I didn't know was that that path that went this way and that way was actually going to come back together again. So Larry wasn't worried because he was going to find his way back again. And I truly believe that the Lord, no matter what path that you've chosen, that the beauty and the mercy of his sovereignty is he'll bring you back. Paul went to the Jerusalem trying to make it by the Passover because that was his passion, what he wanted. He said in Romans 9, I want so bad for all of Israel to be saved that I would be damned if it meant that they could be saved. I would be accursed if it meant that. I don't know anything about that kind of love, but that's the love that he had. And yet the Lord said, But you're going to preach it to the Gentiles, to their kings, and then to the Jews. And when he went, in the entire chapters 20 through 28 of Acts, read it with this lens instead. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. They throw him in a boat, and he ends up in Rome preaching to their kings anyway. He took this path. God wanted that path, and his sovereignty is so great that he still, just like crazy Larry the horse guy, knew that that path was going to come back again. He's going to nudge you back. So if your passion has led you astray... Know that the Holy Spirit, as you bask in him, will awaken new desires. Because I sit here today as a pastor and I can't think of any place I'd rather be than right here with you. Because he gave me the desires of my heart. Over time, as I delighted in him, he gave me the desires of my heart. Not that he gave me what I wanted, he gave me what I want. What I want to want. Does that make sense? As you're planning out your week this week, Some of you are planners, I know it, I can see it. Some of you have lists like my wife has. My wife will sometimes with her legal pad be looking on her iPhone for a date and then writing it with no sense of irony on the legal pad. Even though she's on a calendar, she's got her, you know what I mean? Anyway, um, but she's got lists. I would pray for you this week and for me this week led by the Spirit to say, where are my people in this? How does this affect my people, my family? How does this affect my passion? Is it something I'm passionate about that the Lord has put into my heart? Does it really deploy me in the purpose that he asked for me? Am I somebody who has this gift of mercy and I'm over here trying to do math and decide who does and who doesn't get to eat today because of the math thing in in Haiti? Just deploy in your gift, your purpose, and bask in the presence of his spirit, delighting in him day after day week after week, month after month, year after year, knowing that like Paul, that even if I take a left turn that I should have taken right, our Lord is so big and so sovereign and so amazing that that path will come back again. You'll be fine. There were moments I didn't think that. I, you know, by the time I'm in my 30s, I've got kids, I've got a mortgage. How am I ever going to get back to the ministry path? And I just sort of, well, it's just, maybe this is what the Lord has and we'll do it. And we did. We did for volunteer for years and years and years. And the Lord eventually led us here. And I just, I'm so grateful for a God who's so sovereign. And I know that that's sort of a 30,000 foot view, but bull, pulling it back down to the ground level to Ashley's schedule this week. It's Brutus. You got a car, you got to learn to drive. You got to, we just begin to say yes to things that bring you back to your people and to your passion. I know you're passionate about driving. And deploying in your purpose. Man, may the Lord give you wisdom this week. May he give you and grant you grace and peace in these decisions that we make. You know what my hope would be a year from now? If Mother's Day last year was extremely stressful and I'm freaking out, I'm just trying to get it, we're arguing on the way to church, that next year at the same time, whew, you're just going to church. Today I'm gonna to be with my people and I'm going to breathe, and I'm going to... That if this year your schedule is so overwhelming and you don't even know what to do, that by ne- this time next year that you're saying yes to what the Lord wants you to and saying no with no guilt or shame or conviction. Just, just, this is what God wants me to do. That the war against one more is won by following a Savior who walked, didn't run. We walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. pray that he gives you wisdom for that. Father, would you give us supernatural wisdom that your word is a lamp and a light. And Lord, I know that I feel the burden. And I know that my brothers and sisters here feel the burden as well. How do I decide? How do I keep up? How do I not get left out? How do, Lord, let us all just shut our brains down, and open our spirits up to delight in you, knowing that you'll give us the desires of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.